0: Before biting into this episode of Bitten Peach Pod, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge where we are in this exact moment in time in history. We are a few days after the shooting, killing of eight Asian American women in Atlanta by a white domestic terrorist. That's not what the news is going to tell you. It's going to downplay the racism. It's going to downplay the sexism. It's going to downplay the targeting of this racial group. What it's going to tell you is a white man had a bad day. And the resulting of that was eight Asian women were killed. This is a hate crime. And this episode was recorded a few weeks prior to this moment. And mostly on this podcast, we focus on The joy and the beauty that it is to be queer and Asian, but I did want to take a moment to acknowledge where we are in this point in history. The Stop Asian Hate campaign is being ignited, but I'm so lucky that right now actually this episode is perfect for this moment in time because we are about to hear from an incredible guest, a proud powerful woman, a sex worker, an activist, an artist, an incredible, incredible guest. So let's get into it. Let's bite into Bitten Peach Pod. Welcome back to Bitten Peach Pod. It's me still, same old host. It's me, Shay Shay. Can I get a hey-hey, Shay Shay? I think that's actually the first time I've done that in this series so far. That is a little catchphrase of mine. Welcome to the club, everyone. Today is a very special episode because we are having deja vu. (laughs) This is a a blast from the past. You see, despite being Asian, we're not necessarily the most high-tech podcast in the world. And unfortunately, today's episode, which has a very amazing guest, was lost in the process I was editing it, and it disappeared. It 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 disintegrated into the ether. So we are doing it again. We are repeating, which really is a pleasure for me because it means that I get to have another wonderful conversation with our incredible guest, who I'm going to bring into the room now. And by room, I mean Zoom. Um, today's amazing guest is a often scantily clad... <laughs> Moving, <laughs> grooving, sex machine, <laughs> it is <laughs> Samantha Sun. Hello,
1: again, again, deja vu. Welcome
0: back. Here we go again. Welcome back. Now, I described you as best I could in this moment, but I would love you to describe yourself because I'm sure you've got a better, snappier way of describing all the incredible work you do.
1: Um. Okay, so... I am a stripper, aerialist, just pocket rocket extraordinaire in a teeny little package, I'm five feet tall. <laughs> um, when I'm not making art and teaching other people how to make art or filming um, my butthole for the internet to sell, <laughs> oh. I'm usually engaging in some kind of like stripper activism or sex worker activism which we're
0: gonna get into during this episode because i mean your career your industry our industries are not the same but they are very much linked and they are very much not happening right now because
1: they're completely no one
0: no one's allowed to go out and well some people are allowed to go out in some places but you're definitely not out watching someone loop-de-loop on a hoop hanging from the ceiling with their, with their nuni, nuni on display, Mm -mm. which you're very, very good at. Oh,
1: thank you. Might
0: I say, might I say.
1: Thank you. I believe
0: you once described yourself as a pro-nude scallywag. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, that's what I am. (laughs) So,
0: at the moment, you're in Canada, which is your, your homeland, if you will, whatever that means, and I'm in California, but we know each other from London obviously. And we know each other through the Bitten Peach Collective, which I realize this many episodes into the podcast, I've never explained to our audience where the name comes from.
1: Have you not? I
0: have not explained it. And I feel that you should explain it with me because you are not only a peach owner, you are a peach eater. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... The bitten peach, uh, in addition to being, you know, wonderful imagery because of the peaches' association with the buttocks, uh, comes from long ago in ancient China, pre-BC, I think we're talking 500 BC, Zhou Dynasty era. There is this legend where a royal duke and their very beautiful... Attendant who is also male, but feels very genderqueer to me, if you ask me. And you are asking me, or I'm telling you, even if you didn't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this, this, this legend about the beautiful attendant whose name is
1: Me uh, mezi Xia. Mi, I think Mizi
0: Xia. Mi Sha. Xia. Yeah.
1: I'm Chinese, and I still can't pronounce this. I
0: know Jason Quan has helped me try to learn how to say this, and uh, every time I have to take a big pause and I say it with much uncertainty, but I believe it's Mijija. And um, Mijija and the Duke are taking a walk in a garden, the palace gardens, and a very plump peach on the vine, on the tree, tree, not vine, calls out. So Mijija takes the peach, takes a bite, and then offers it to the Duke, who accepts the bitten peach. And then that name kind of became synonymous with homosexual love for centuries beyond then so we adopted it for our our collective and there's actually a similar legend that has to do about lesbian love have you heard of the legend of the cut sleeve
1: the cut sleeve no tell me about this
0: (gasps) so in this version of the story it's is is um there's a royal powerful woman and she is in bed with her female lover who is asleep, she's sleeping, but the royal woman has to get to some sort of important meeting. She's got to get, I don't know, she's got to go be a boss woman elsewhere. Yeah. But she doesn't want to wake her sleepy, sleepy lover. So the sleepy lover is asleep on top of the sleeve of the royal woman's gown, robe situation. So instead of waking her, she cuts the sleeve of her royal gown and then shows up to this meeting with a, you know, mangled gown and people are aghast, but it's because she didn't want to wake her sleeping lover. That's
1: so cute. You know what? I actually posted something very similar the other day. There was a Japanese, I think. Um, it's the cat. With the cat, yeah, where this, it's a drawing of this um, lady, she must be a courtier or like somebody within, within high society and a cat is sleeping on the edge of her kimono. And instead of waking the cat, she, like, cuts the square on which the cat is sleeping. And I think it's brilliant because nothing about humans has changed
0: since See, then. when you posted that, I saw that, and I immediately thought it was a reference to the, the cut-sleeve legend. And I thought it was, like, the newer uptake. But it was an old ancient block art piece.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not new or anything. Like that's just like someone a print. I don't think we've <laughs> oh changed gosh. at all.
0: <laughs> so, I think the only thing queerer than not waking your lover is not, is waking, not waking, up waking your cat. cat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I'm actually really glad that we're redoing this because I had to think about your question for me about what should be in the queer Asian oh, Hall of do you have Fame. A new answer? I have I have added answers i have two new things oh, i would shit. like it <laughs> i know so I don't someone's know, you done wanna... their
0: homework all and you know what's great there is no there is no there's no blueprint for the order in which any of this needs to happen right yes typically i ask the question about the queer A- asian pokedex at the end when we we contribute items to the official queer asian po- pokedex but there is nothing to say that we can't begin that process now. So, we're throwing the rule book out the window of which there was no rules and there was no window. But you and I the windows uh, eyes are the windows to the soul and I'm looking into my my Google Chrome window into my Zoom window into your window eyes. Yes. I sound stoned but I promise I'm not. <laughs> so Samantha Sun. Yes purveyor of queer Asian culture and creator of queer Asian culture, I would like to know, do you have a submission for the official queer Asian Pokedex? You can think of this listener as a Asia, uh, hall of fame for all queer Asian paraphernalia.
1: I'm so glad you asked Shay Shay because um, I actually have (laughs) four. I'm so glad you
0: asked me to ask you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because I have four submissions that we can do. Oh my
0: gosh. (laughs) We have Um, an overachieving Asian in the room. I know. um, Well let's do them bit by bit. Let's not do them all at once. We'll scatter them throughout the episode because then we can talk about them. We can talk about them. So
1: I guess I'll, I'll start with the new ones and this is the one that kind of goes back to Old Japanese woodblock prints having these very slice of life kind of feeling towards them, and how they still really, really mm. applicable. This isn't necessarily queer, um,
0: but it can be. It can be. We are saying it is. I
1: think it's very feminist. Actually, is what it is. It, oh. It's very, very feminist. It's called the Pillow Book. It's by Sei Pillow Book. It's by Sei Shonagon. I've got it. I'm holding it up right now. It is a kind of what I would call it. I'd just call it a diary written by somebody who was the like lady in waiting for the Japanese empress at the time. This
0: is old? It's this is really very, very old. old. This is I've like, heard about this, I think.
1: It was written in like 1100 like Japan. I'm not fully done yet and it's also not written in a way that we would kind of ever consider to be like it's not written in a way that is familiar to us today in writing because it's kind of like prose it's just it's just like a girl writing about her time as working for like the imperial palace and japanese and a lot of Mm -hmm. like chinese poetry at the time is really kind of obsessed with aesthetics and so it's interesting to read about her talking about what is lovely like the like cherry blossoms in the wind or like winter snow or blah blah blah. That she sounds t- lovely. it's really lovely it's very poetic but to also then know historically at the time what the political kind of um, drama would have been with the fact that her lady-in-waiting wasn't able to give the emperor a son and what that would have done to her standing if he decided to take on another wife. Like there was a lot of that going on, but you won't ever see it explicitly in the book. because She would have never written about that in her diary. It would have been inappropriate. She just writes about like mm. beautiful poetry, but she's very, very smart. All of the like, kind of all her encounters with people are through um, like coded letters where she writes, someone writes write something to her in poetry. And like at the time you would have memorized lots and lots and lots of poems and then she would have like a really witty reply back but she was so funny some of the things she wrote i just thought was fucking hilarious because it was like okay you're clearly like a 20 something year old woman at the end of the day and one of my favorite like entries is she talks about having to go to a buddhist sermon with like everybody in the royal palace and it's like a fucking hour long and she sits there she writes about this in her very sort of poetic old school Japanese royal sort of language she writes about what is basically how she says that if you are going to be a priest you have to be hot because if you're not hot you're gonna she's <laughs> gonna get bored and not listen to you and if she's not listening <sighs> to you then she's committing a sin and that's not good so she re- spends an entire so chapter yeah she spends an entire chapter talking about how you have to be hot to be a Buddhist priest and I fucking died because I was like I don't feel like I'm reading something from like a thousand years ago. I feel like I'm reading something written by someone right now. <laughs>
0: because it do be known that it is easier to listen if you find the speaker of it yes. attractive. So I hope I would love I would love all our listeners to know we're both so attractive. <laughs> we're, both so we're both so hot. hot. <laughs> like so hot. <laughs> So the pillow book, when you first mentioned it, I thought it was going to be about the bedroom. I thought it was going to be like in the pillows, like like I'm going to bite my pillow and, and, and you're going to read me a book, baby.
1: So the reason I found out about this book is because I did an act for Torture Garden. Jason helped me with this where yes. they basically asked me to do a fucking geisha look again, right? So I was like, all right, let me help you out but let me try to do it maybe in a non-racist way because I'm not Japanese. I should not be dressing up as a geisha. Mm -hmm. And so I had the idea to write in black body paint Chinese poetry all over me. Because everybody in Torture Garden can't see that. And the only people who can read it, it will be like a little Easter egg. I had Jason write down some Cantonese, like, lyrics on me. I I let Mm -hmm. him write his last name on my neck, kind of like branding. Because who knows? No one's going to know that. Oh Yes, branded. And then at the very end of the act, I pour water all over my naked body after I've stripped off everything. And all the paint runs away and all the words disappear. So that's like a very visually kind of arresting act considering that i didn't have access to props on the stage or Mm. like an aerial apparatus so like when I don't have access to a pole or a hoop or a trapeze, whatever it is I do on stage has to be like visually stunning.
0: Yeah, because usually you're flipping, and flipping, and dipping and defying gravity.
1: Exactly. So you got to do something. You else. are
0: Elphaba defying gravity every time you get on that stage. You're Elphaba <laughs> on the pole.
1: Oh, don't get me started. I fucking love Wicked. <laughs> and so gay. Yeah, it is very gay.
0: Very gay. But yeah,
1: so then somebody messaged me and said, "Oh, this act is very like the Pillow Book. If you have." haven't seen it I go look it up on YouTube it's this weird movie from like 1996 with Ewan McGregor okay yeah the movie has nothing to do with the actual like book but the it's about the it's the it's this like weird like art house erotica movie featuring a half Chinese half Japanese like model and Ewan McGregor and like the whole premise of it is that Her dad, her Japanese dad, used to write sort of yearly like good omens on her using ink, like in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And then so now, as an adult, as a model, she has this weird fetish for like being written on but she everybody who writes on her has to be really good with calligraphy it's really it is a very very fetishizing you know like of asian people but it and has our, nothing
0: to do with the book
1: it has nothing to nothing at all to do with the book they just took the name and then i looked up mm. the book and the book is actually incredible a, a, zero things to actually do with the movie but like they took the same name so that's how i got to this book was ah. through this strange like happenstance of trying to evade a queer journey yeah a queer journey trying to evade fetishization but i kind of like these concepts of like again being written on having it like wash out in the rain it's very very beautiful i just like it when it's like maybe like not done with like the white gaze on it that would be nice
0: (laughs) so so let's go into that so you mentioned torture garden which is
1: a fetish ball
0: a yeah oh
1: that's okay
0: that's a much kinder way of describing it than i was gonna say um, I was gonna say like a straight people naked party
1: <laughs> yeah also that <laughs> kinda
0: but it wasn't always that way I would like to you know we can give it a bit of credit it was quite like subversive and counterculture earlier on in it's uh, I still think they are
1: to some degree I still oh, think good. they are but like oh, it's also like English people mm. yeah I don't know mm. I've never met a group of people who wanted to like cosplay as Asians more desperately than the English it's very strange
0: mm. You know mm-hmm.
1: what I mean? It's just weird. I feel like in North America, people are more like, are a little bit more like brazen about this when it comes to like appropriating black culture, where it's like you see people all the time cosplaying black people yeah. and you're like, can you stop doing that, please? But I've never really seen white people here feel the need to like put buns and chopsticks in their hair. But I see yeah. that all the time in London. So it's like, I think it's the cultural yeah. difference there.
0: <laughs> Must have something to do with like the amount of. Like, the amount at which that culture is still exotic to the general population. Like, there's not as much Asian representation on movies and TV and just, like, in cities in the UK. And so the culture and the aesthetics of it seems, you know, distant and far off and alluring.
1: Yeah, they're still really, it is still very strange. But I don't
0: know how to then explain, like, North America's co-optation of Black aesthetic, because there's obviously lots and lots of Black people and Black culture visible. That, I also think, has something to do with class.
1: Yeah, big time.
0: Which the UK has a big problem of working class appropriation. All the, like, rich little kids who like to dress as if they grew up on a council estate. Yeah, that it's, I find really uncomfortable.
1: It, that, and it's also, I think, an issue with, like, clout and also kind of your proximity to Black people. I People who have proximity to Asians generally don't feel the need to dress like them or dress up as them, whereas mm-hmm. people who have a lot of proximity to Black people and Black culture, whether knowingly or not, feel the need to, like, dress up like them and do their hair like them
0: do we recall adele's outfit at carnival this year
1: yeah that i mean even that to me is like a conversation we should probably have about kind of how if she because she's a proper like south londoner right and so there's a ton of people who are like
0: uh, uh tottenham
1: oh tottenham she's Northeast north london, london.
0: yeah a heavily afro-caribbean area she grew up surrounded by that culture
1: right so she's got like proximity to them and so it's interesting because i don't think anybody from tottenham who or like anyone who would be around her would have ever had an issue with that especially when it comes to carnival Mm -hmm. but like the american like discourse about that was so different from how the English saw it, and that showed like a huge divide about how people view these things. I think it's like I've actually had to have a conversation with somebody about this the other day. Someone asked me, "Is it if I could do box braids on them?" And I was like, um, "I'm going to go ahead and say no because you're white." you probably shouldn't do box braids and it got into this long conversation about like who is allowed to do that and who isn't and i just was like it's not whether or not you're allowed to do braids or not the actual point is that you could do braids if you wanted to it's kind of not really that's not the issue here but like have you ever interrogated why it is that you want to do that and most of the time it's like you just want to cosplay a black person I'm like, it's so weird to me that you can't enjoy hip-hop or rap or R&B or their culture without feeling the need to, like, dress up like them. It's very bizarre.
0: And take ownership over some of it. Yeah, it's
1: so weird. I just... It's never occurred to me to do that. Like, I love hip-hop. I love rap. I don't feel the need ever to dress up like Migos. I'm good. I can just enjoy them for how they are. It's all right. I don't need to put braids in my hair. It's fine.
0: I think it is often from the white perspective there is like that desire to have some sort of culture that like feels like it's not just the kind of the dominant bland majority generic white culture like there's some there's some sort of prestige in having a connection to or identity with a culture that is oppressed
1: yeah everyone does it for clout and it's definitely not just white people i think like minorities have a lot to answer for too like there's like tons of like kind of up and coming like sort of underground rap i'm I'm not even underground they're like well known though they're like these this chinese like rap group 88 rising or higher brothers and like they're great i like what they do but i'm just like you do realize all of your aesthetics are just coming from black culture or like bts when they like released a bunch of rap Mm. a lot of k-pop that do rap properly or they try to I'm like for a while there I was and even today right now I'm just like are you able to enjoy k-pop rap and create that kind of music without without like just overtly appropriating black people are you capable of doing that and a lot of the times the answer is just no
0: (laughs) yeah the thing that you definitely make a really good point about k-pop because there was a period that is not necessarily over where a lot of the k Pop that was hip-hop and rap-inspired also aesthetically was just straight-up black cosplay.
1: Yeah, I'm like, why? You're K-pop, you don't have to
0: do that. And we know none of the people in this group have even, even, even brushed with what it might be to live in an oppressed ghetto. They have no idea. It is so far removed from anything they've experienced that it is purely for aesthetic, which is Which is ultimately like kind of the worst form of appropriation where it is just, just for aesthetic. No significant, no significant uh, understanding of the culture or respect for where any of it comes from. It's just, I like the look of it.
1: Yeah, it was very, yeah, it is quite strange. And then there also this conversation about like, like in terms of like how the East view hip hop culture and black culture is kind of also like, adjacent to the fact that they really associate it with mostly just Americans it's interesting because like there's like a Mm. yeah there's like this big conversation that I had with my friend and then it all just boiled down to like you know this big conversation is amazing but and it boils down to please do not put braids in your hair because someone is gonna make fun of you I'm gonna make fun of you
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think you made the right choice
1: Thanks. I try to do my best. I try to do my job.
0: And it sounds like you had a bit of a conversation with this person. Yes. And maybe they'll maybe they thought about things a little bit.
1: Like maybe. I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been doing a lot of sex worker activism. Actually, this is a very good segue into the next
0: ch- mm, chunk. I love a segue. Come yeah. on, just squeeze me in there.
1: I've been doing a lot of activism with a girl like girls who are based in LA mostly. And um these ladies are not agreeable. They don't give two fucks. And I have had to put a mirror up to myself and ask myself a lot of questions about like the quality of my advocacy and like how much of a voice do I give people of color, particularly the black and indigenous community because I'm not them. I'm not marginalized the way they are, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, they kind of taught me a lot, and one of the things I think one of them kind of mentioned that I I thought about, it and it made me think about things like kind of differently because it never this. They basically put exactly into words what this thing is of whenever somebody asks you where you're from or what you are, especially if you're like mixed in some way, they're asking you because they're trying to decide how much respect to give you after the you've given them an answer. It's Mm. really, really interesting. I was like, I've never thought of it that way, but that's why that question bothers me. And that's why that question Mm. bothers a lot of people who are just not white, who are biracial.
0: Well, then it's the perfect time for me to ask you the question. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Samantha. I'm going to ask you everyone's favorite question. A question that it sounds like you've uh, done some interrogation over. And that question is, but where are you really from? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> where am i really from i am born and raised in toronto canada my parents are from hong kong and they moved here in the 80s and my grandparents are also from hong kong my dad's side are from shanghai and that is as far back as we can trace right now
0: <laughs> and do your grandparents live in canada now too
1: yeah both sets of my grandparents wow. have moved from hong kong to canada um, i'm really lucky my grandpa on my mom's side was like really well educated for his time like he went to uni- he went to law school in taiwan that's like a big deal oh, for wow. somebody who is like in taiwan yeah that's a big deal for someone who's that old right um he came to canada to help run like the first i think chinese bank in toronto and then he kind of moved mm. on to real estate and like to this day he's he still works. He's, like, 80. He's retired, but he's still, like, technically, like, part of the company, and he still signs off on shit because he doesn't like being bored. Yeah, <laughs> He's interesting. He still gets, like, calls, and they're like, hey, can you come, like, sign off on this deal because, like, we haven't fixed our infrastructure yet to not include
0: you. <laughs> he's like, yep, I'll be there. I'll pop my yeah. ink on the pad.
1: He is really sweet. He's very invested in my, my immigration life trying to get to and from London because... He's had to deal with this before. So when I got my first Mm. visa after my student visa ended and I came on a working holiday visa, I was really nervous because you don't find out until you pick up your passport from the visa center whether or not you have been accepted. And so I was looking at this letter that we got and I was like, it doesn't give you a direct answer. And he like went through it word for word using his Oxford English dictionary. And he's like, I'm 100% sure you will get it. (laughs) He's very sweet. He like went through it.
0: But I think you make a really good point. This lesson that you kind of learned from, from some of the black and indigenous people in the stripper collective or the wider stripper community about that question really having to do with like respect, because I mean, people can often guess your overall race yeah of course i mean we could say that everyone's colorblind but people can usually determine that but i would say a lot of the time especially i mean unfortunately even within race there's like there's hierarchies in the western state of mind like people have a different different perception of what it means to be vietnamese versus what it means to be thai versus what it means to be japanese yeah there's there's and there's different levels of respect Associated with those, I think it's it's for me. I can think of it being even more apparent in the Latinx and Hispanic communities because someone saying that they're from Portugal versus saying they're from Brazil versus saying they're from Mexico versus saying they're from Argentina is going to elicit a different response from your generic white person.
1: Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's also really. Um, I mean. Code switching exists amongst, I think, Eurasians as well, but I think it's much more apparent for people who have proximity or have blackness attached to them. And the more visibly black you are, the less able you are to code switch. And mm. it's for the people who are like not visibly black that they get this question asked, because based off of that answer, someone is going to choose how they treat this person based off how black they are, mm-hmm. how black they seem, you could still apply the same concept, I think, to Eurasians or just people who are biracial, but it's like, when I heard them say that, when they, heard, they were sort of talking about race and anti-blackness and minorities and, like, wider culture, but it's really important to, like, interrogate this when you do sex worker activism, because it's so mired in, like, issues around race, particularly anti-blackness, and so when they put, brought this up, I was like, this is, like, I've never thought of it before, but that's why it bothers me when people ask me where I'm from because it's not enough for me to just appear to them as a person and exist. They need to know my proximity to western culture in order to give me the respect that I want. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. It's very weird, yeah. but um yeah, it and I never really ask weird. people this question. I have done in the past and I'm going to stop because like it doesn't actually matter to me that much and also like people will tell you eventually if If you're actually interested in where somebody's...
0: And um, when it matters. When the subject actually pertains to something you're doing. Like like if we were all figuring out who spoke what languages for something that we needed to translate. Then someone might say, oh, well, I speak this because I grew up in this place. Or I speak this language because my parents taught it to me. Like if it's important, it will come up. And a lot of the time, it's not important. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It's amongst a lot of the things I've been thinking about lately.
0: So in addition to things that you've been thinking about recently, I know you've been thinking a lot about things that need to go into our official queer Asian Pokedex (laughs) and you've compiled a few, as you've said. So I would like to know what item is your next item that you'd like to submit into our queer Asian Pokedex.
1: I cannot believe it didn't occur to me to put this in because it is possibly the gayest thing ever. The so, gayest
0: thing ever? I thought I had that title. Y-
1: you are the gayest thing ever, but this might Thank you. This is more macho gay. What
0: what you try what you trying to say about me, <laughs> bitch?
1: <laughs> you don't look like a cloud.
0: Oh. But I am I am dreamy yeah. like a cloud. You
1: are you are very dreamy.
0: So <laughs> tell me about this macho cloud. Are you talking about the Michelin man?
1: No, I'm talking okay, it's this it's this um anime slash manga series called Jojo's Bizarre Adventure.
0: Okay.
1: It is not overtly gay as are most things, I think, that I'm gonna put in the queer Asian Pokedex but Jojo is about as gay as it gets. Again, it's something that has vampires in it. The men are all fucking Ooh. sexy. Like they're all they're all tops. They're all giant and and like the way the artist has drawn everybody, he's clearly taken a ton of influence from um Italian Vogue back in like the 80s and the 90s. And so when he draws people like about to do their fight stance, they're always in very high fashion like poses but it's like these giant macho guys fighting vampires intergenerationally having a crazy rivalry and being very loud and flamboyant and colorful
0: i'm looking at them now it's extremely fashion (laughs) it's very gay it's very gay they all have these like kind of like slightly sad pout lips yeah like "Uh." (laughs) and it looks like our main character the the cutout on their chest is heart-shaped.
1: Yes. (laughs) So you
0: can just see bulging pectoral that really does look like a very high cleavage.
1: It's pretty amazing. Again, there's very little, like, actual, I think...
0: Homosexuality.
1: Yeah, but I think just, like, aesthetically, it's very gay, and it is also very high quality in terms of plot and story and fighting. It's fantastic. I
0: imagine that these rippling fashion twinks were indeed a lot of people's queer awakening i feel something awakening in me right now
1: rippling fashion twinks <laughs> queer fashion twinks it's just funny cuz like the whole premise of it right is intergenerational vampires there's a vampire named dio they're all like italian names so i think it's really funny as well dio and he's obsessed with the joestar family and Everybody, every generation of Jo's, jo, the stars. it's called Jojo because every single person is named Jojo. So you get Joseph Joestar, oh, you get like Jonathan Joestar, right? So they call them Jojo. And each generation of new Joestars has to fucking fight Dio, the vampire, who's a sexy blonde vampire who wears like green lipstick and is just very, very like oh yeah kind of like pimp like oh, and yeah. it's just so flamboyant and very camp and i love it camp is the best word i can think of for this it's yeah very camp- oh yeah
0: they, i mean the outfits are fantastic that's
1: yeah, great everyone
0: go look up jojo's bizarre adventures or bizarre adventure rather the outfits are very very good and very gay there's a, like the poses are very fashion
1: yes very 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 fashion like,
0: oh, there's a lot of like, gender bending happening here. There's one that kind of has this bob bowl cut that really does look like it could be a very kind of svelte, muscular woman.
1: <laughs> so I just thought it was really funny, and I think this belongs definitely in the Queer Asian Pokedex.
0: Well, it's been captured. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is in with its... Homo homoerotic vampire fighting yep. which is gonna i think needs to immediately be followed by when we had our conversation last time you had another gay asian vampire related submission i think i'm i'm noticing a trend here
1: i think vampires personally i think this might not Yay. be true for everybody i think vampires are just gay
0: yeah hello. both sides they want to suck your blood hello like
1: Both the female vampires and the male vampires. Anyway, the next submission, and yeah, I'm gonna make that we talked about last time, is this fucking hilarious B rated movie called Moonchild. It was like made in like 2003, 2004, I think. So it is the ill conceived mind baby of this Japanese rock star slash kind of enigmatic celebrity. His name is Gact. G-A-C-K-T.
0: Yes, heard of Gakt.
1: I am like 100% convinced that Gakt is not fully human in real life. I'm pretty sure he's a demigod. He speaks Japanese, English, like Mandarin, Korean, like fucking some French as well. Like he's, I don't know, what, what, how where did you have time to learn all these in- languages? What the fuck? He's oh. six feet tall. He looks like a doctored image. It's this gorgeous. is gorgeous this
0: this i can attest to this does look indeed touched up by the gods
1: and he was like trained as like an opera singer so his ability to like belt out a ballad is amazing so he was really close at the time to the other sort of Japanese rock and pop community and one of his faves I think is a currently still working and very successful and also possibly a demigod musician called Hyde. Hyde is like amazing he's currently he made um he recently made Attack on Titans like I think intro song to season three so he's still working and still performing. He's very yeah and he's like in his 50s and he's like incredible but so How Moonchild happens is I'm pretty sure Gakt just wanted an excuse to, like, write some fucking fan fiction about himself with his best friend Hyde. And he decides to make a vampire movie. And the whole premise of the movie is, like, Hyde is, like, a vampire and discovers, like, baby Gact and, like, raises him. And then they, like, become, like, really good friends and, like, kind of, like, crime gang sort of buddies and crime crime.
0: gays. (laughs)
1: crime gaze in like like neo neo sort of dystopian futuristic hong kong where they like smoke weed and chill but like also like commit crime and there's like lots and lots of really funny awful Mm. fight scenes with guns and like being able to catch a cigarette in like mid-air and like they have this like they just have so many homoerotic moments where like vampire hide is like i can't you can't live with me like this anymore. I'm a vampire. I can't go into sunlight. And then Gak like throws a tantrum and goes, you can't leave me like this. Oh no. (laughs) And like the very end of the movie, they get into some kind of like fucking awful fatal fight with like another gang. This is years down the line. More gay vampires? Yeah. Like, well, actually I think it's just like a random mafia gang. And like, Hyde and, and Gact have not seen each other in years in the movie at this point. and and like Gacht gets like fatally wounded and Hyde is like, "Oh no, I've got to turn him into a vampire And then he does and it's just like mind-blowingly bad this movie, but it's fucking so self-indulgent and it's just gay vampires and there's so much gay subtext. If you just like look up, images of this movie and the promo stuff there's no way
0: i am doing at this very moment yeah
1: there's no like heterosexual explanation for what is going on in this series and then the best part right to me the most interesting part is that the same way whitney houston and mariah carey recorded when you believe for the prince of egypt
0: iconic collaboration iconic
1: Gact and Hyde attempted their own version of this for their movie, and it's called Orange Sun. It's a seven-minute ballad duet. An epic. <laughs> and I was just like, there's no heterosexual explanation for this. Wow. It's amazing. And the best part is, I actually think I really enjoy this part of the movie. They all speak like a mix of like Mandarin, Cantonese, and Japanese to each other. And like the assumption is somehow all of them were supposed to understand this together.
0: Oh, that they just all kind of speak all these languages, or at least, like, understand them all enough to...
1: Yeah, which is crazy, because, like, that's totally not how it works, but it's brilliant that that I was... I wish it
0: how did. They...
1: I know, it's brilliant that that's how they sort of conceived it at the time, but it is a hilarious uh, cult classic, I would say, and if you're ever interested in, like, deep diving in like, the kind of, like, subculture of, like, early 2000s Japanese sort of, like, rock and pop, a huge chunk of that involved very... Androgynous-looking men who were very, really beautiful. They're gorgeous. They had makeup on. They had outfits. And like, I always used to question, sort of like, knowing that most of their audience was teenage girls. I always used to question, kind of like, why they went that direction instead of kind of like the Backstreet Boys or like One Direction kind of direction. Yeah, make sense.
0: Yeah, the One Direction direction.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think what was the explanation at the time was that it is the safest way kind of for people who are young to feel, to be able to express kind of their weird teenage sexual needs onto these like really beautiful men who kind of don't really sit between either like masculinity and femininity. And they are really okay to express mm. very like soft homoerotic fan service. Mm-hmm. So it, it they exist in this weird safe space that allows them to be objectified by the female gaze. It's really it's really interesting. Oh. I think it's like one of the only situations I look at them and I'm like you exist because of the female gaze. You haven't been male yes. gazed upon even though you're queer. So it I it's really interesting. It's not it's kind of like died down now as like we head into 2021. But back in the early 2000s this aesthetic was huge. This was like everywhere, and it it, it kind of like is interesting because like the West views like the West has always viewed these like celebrities as kind of a justification for why they emasculate Asian men.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But true. Coming from like an Asian view, like the Eastern perspective on this is that. They were clearly, all of this, all of these decisions were to make money. And clearly the thing that made the most money was appealing to a certain subset of people, which is fangirls. And fangirls wanted something very different. Pretty. Yes. They wanted pretty. They
0: wanted pretty. They wanted pretty
1: and safe. And like, kind of like. That's what I want. I'm about. We might be a thing, but we might not. And you have to pay attention to every detail of how we interact in interviews and little touches. (laughs) It was insane. And I was totally one of those fangirls, which is why I know about this stupid fucking movie. Well,
0: it's in. I mean, (laughs) I feel like vampires are inherently quite gay. Yeah.
1: Homosexual. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I think of like, like, just the vampire aesthetic is often kind of a bit like... Not not these vampires. These are like you know early two thousand vampire, but the vampire aesthetic kind of like flowy. Like what's the one? What's the one? What's the movie with um with Tom Cruise and
1: oh, inter- Brad Pitt? Yeah, it, yeah, in, interview with the vampire. They, oh,
0: so gay, so gay, so gay. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, what it
1: is? I mean, some of them were actually gay. Like the whole. I think there was like the, the Carmilla which is the name of like this Romanian vampire who was like a she was kind of like a mix between a vampire and a succubus. She was a lesbian. She was like preying on like innocent virginal women
0: mm, because they taste better.
1: Yeah, and I'm like wow. I want I want Carmilla to prey on me. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> prey on You're me, like, baby.
0: Come succubus me, baby. <laughs> yeah. Suck this I'm- bussy. Suck you I'm- bussy. <laughs>
1: You're bussy, Shay. I now know. Are you a bottom? No. Only bottoms. You. No. You're not a bottom.
0: I I do not confine to binary ideas of of gender or sexual position. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, I respect that. I am a bottom though, one (laughs) hundred percent.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit more about stripping because I think for some people there's some confusion over kind of the differences between stripping and burlesque and pole dancing. Because obviously there's crossover in these different things, but there are... Uh, yeah. We could define them yeah. kind of separately. And I think with the uprise of pole dancing, especially with everyone getting a pole put in their living room in lockdown, and by everyone I mean lanky white twinks,
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um,
0: how would you, if you had to like quick one sentence separate these three areas
1: pole dancing would not exist without strippers first of all so if you are a pole dancer you need to res- Boom. you need to respect strippers a and we said that stop taking up space that strippers are supposed to take up because you you're you're the reason this is gentrified you're the reason a ton of us do not have the like ability to like make income or the like recognition we get so first of all fuck pole dancers but second of all the other thing that's the historically kind of hard to differentiate between burlesque dancers and strippers is that they used to be the same thing mm. burlesque historically who they reference so sort of josephine baker the mataharis the those that subset of like old school burlesque dancers and even like the new school ones dita von Teese is an ex-stripper mm-hmm. right but there it's not so much crossover so much as it is they historically are the same thing. Burlesque has just kind of been mired in kind of like what I would consider a gentrification that has allowed it to become less about the striptease and the kind of the ingenuity of being sort of political and also being censored at the time to just sort of being about waving around as expensive as you can fans and very expensive outfits and not really having anything really that important to say. Whereas stripping as like a job is really not about your stage show. Yes, there are some really good stage show strippers, but strippers being a good stripper is about how good you are one-on-one with somebody because it's in that one in one situation That you hustle them and you make money from lap dance. Yeah, that's how you make your lap dance money.
0: It's important that we note stripping is in the sex work realm. Yes. Versus the new, you know, the new version of burlesque doesn't really want to associate with that, I don't think.
1: No, and I wouldn't call burlesque dancers sex workers either. I don't think taking your clothes off on stage counts when I've had to if when I've had to give a lap dance to somebody who is wearing sweatpants so they can feel everything and then I I can feel everything in turn and then by the end of the dance, it's a little bit wet. That's work. You know? Like, that's... That's work. That's different from having... Just taking off your bra and having pasties on at the end. Like, that's... Those are different... That's different to me. Some strippers don't want to be called sex workers and a lot of that is about... We have to talk about stigma when it comes to sex work because... They don't want yes. that label because they're afraid of the stigma. Equally, mm-hmm. burlesque dancers have had to... Burlesque dancers have, like, really moved themselves away from sex work and stripping because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. So it's become very mainstream only because now people can say, oh, they're burlesque dancers, they're not actually strippers. But they say that in a way that is clearly, like, demeaning to people who actually strip. Judgmental. Yeah.
0: And we should note, of course, that there are, there are lots of people that exist in both worlds. Yes. There are stri- there are burlesque performers who are also strippers who are also sex workers. Yeah. And there are also sex workers who are drag performers. And, and like there is lots of yes. crossover. But but what we're noting here is that the kind of the commercialization of drag and kind of the commercialization and 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 kind of gentrification of burlesque are Inherently trying to kind of distance themselves from the more underground, illicit, illegal, criminalized parts of the sex work and sex performance industry. Yeah.
1: And I think it's I mean, again, this is a result of criminalization of stigma, obviously, drag performers and pole dancers and burlesque dancers. The first rule of sex work is discretion. I would never in my wildest dreams think to attempt to out somebody Regardless of what they do in terms of drag or burlesque, if I knew they were a sex worker, right? It just means mm-hmm. that they exist in those circles kind of as privately or publicly as they want. But I think the general public has forgotten that, like, historically, people have had to fund their drag careers by doing sex work. They forget that actually a large part of queer sex work is fucking people while they're in drag.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: you are, people pay you. People will pay almost double or more, or more if you are willing to do sex work and drag, which a lot of people have issues with. But like some people don't, and they they just do it. Also, people forget tons of people in cabaret in burlesque have to supply. How, how do you think they make money? They're not making money from doing burlesque. It's very difficult. No. Oh they my make money God. from sex work, and so because. It's this like, it's this like kind of like never ending cycle of because you are put in danger by your label as a sex worker, that has to be kept secret. But because you had to do self erasure and self censorship, there is very little visibility for people who are sort of bigger names within burlesque and drag who have done sex work who acknowledge it who speak up about it because it puts their careers in danger to talk about it. So it's this awful cycle that keeps going and going and going, going. Mm. But sex work has always existed in both these facets of cabaret. And yeah. I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think it is. I, and no. what do people think drag even is? You're, you're doing, you still have to sell your body. You're still actively selling your erotic capital.
0: Oh, I saw, I saw a piece of information posted saying like, If you think that sex work is selling your body, but manual labor isn't, you need to interrogate why
1: that is your
0: own, you know, kind of judgmental things about sex, because absolutely people that are doing, you know, construction work that is selling their bodies.
1: Absolutely. It's the same. Absolutely.
0: And they have less agency over what they have to do with their bodies versus someone who is able to manage their own sex work career because we should note obviously there's terrible terrible uh, examples of sex work that are you know is human trafficking yeah or where someone's being taken advantage of by someone that kind of yeah. manages their career and their money there are lots of terrible examples of that and that is why that is the justification a lot of the time used of why there needs to be criminalization of sex work but we also need to think about if sex work wasn't so criminalized would those avenues be as successful or are they able to flourish because of the criminalization of sex work
1: absolutely I get this is again a lot of my research and my eventual master's degree will probably touch hugely upon this oh ah, yes
0: i forgot you're on your road to be a mistress in the bedroom and a master in the classroom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't wait. Well, I hope my Asian parents are very proud of me for getting more educated. But like, yeah, it's like it's a really complicated question of like why I don't love, and I'm sure you as a drag performer probably hate having this conversation too. I don't like it when people kind of reduce the questioning they ask me about sex work to empowerment. Like, Ooh. I don't actually care if drag, burlesque, stripping, pole dancing, I don't care if any of that shit is empowering on a bodily scale, on like an essential physical scale. I care that we get paid. That's the most important part. If, you, if we are being paid appropriately for our work, we have access to workers' rights and employment mm-hmm. rights, then that's the best kind of empowerment, I don't actually care how sexually empowered I am as a result of doing any of this work. I don't do this to be sexually empowered. I do this because I need money. Mm -hmm. That's it. And I think that's a huge part of the conversation that people forget to have because it's not as fun as talking about whether or not I feel sexually empowered from doing my work. That's such a bizarre question to ask. Because
0: unfortunately, under capitalism, we got to make the money. Yeah. There is no other choice.
1: And I think the same can be said of drag. I think people ask all the time, like, oh, my God, it must be so nice to, like, explore your, like, different explorations of gender through drag, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what would be nicer? Being able to be paid more than 50 pounds per drag gig. That would be nice.
0: Absolutely, it would be nice. And unfortunately, we're moving into an era where the small elite who have been able to be selected to take part in the drag race TV show are about to totally fluctuate the value of performers in the industry when things are able to reopen because all of their value, the 12 of them or whatever have, have just, you know, skyrocketed. Their value is 10 to 15 times more of that of their peers, even if they have less you know, club experience, performance experience. They just have TV experience. And then meanwhile, when venues are able to reopen, there is going to be less money because there's going to be lower capacities. And so venues are going to have to decide between booking the expensive queens from the TV show or booking more queens or performers not just queens because obviously the show only includes drag queens when we both know the there's london scene kings. and the dra- those yeah. drag kings there's non-binary drag performers who are you know beautiful creatures of all sorts and these performers are they going to be selected or and booked when 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 venues are going to be so focused on getting big numbers in they're going to want to fill to the max that they're able to because they need to they need to make money just like we were just talking about. They need to make money.
1: Yeah. And again, this I don't think this would have been such a big problem if it weren't for the fact that BBC, due to like certain, you know, the fact that they're government sort of they have government money mm-hmm. are not allowed to pay
0: people. Yeah, There's not there's no prize winning. There's no prize Money.
1: Now, so if that was if they were or if they were just paid like a buyout sort of situation for being appearing on TV. I
0: think they're paid like a episode daily rate, but it's not like it's not a buyout. It's like it's like a day rate.
1: Yeah, that's not the same. You no, know? That is really not the same. No. But if they were paid a buyout no. the way you're supposed to be when you appear on on film. A syndicated TV show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah then I think there would be less of a, they would feel less of a need to have to get those gigs. But as a result of not being paid for being on their show, them being on the show is a sort of investment that all these queens have made into their careers. And now a hopefully-
0: huge investment. They all spend massive. tens of thousands to prepare to be on that show.
1: Yeah. And so they've just gone in, a lot of them have gone into crazy amounts of debt in order to be on Drag Race. And now it's the hope that the next couple years coming, that will pay off because venues will then pay to have them be on. Yeah, they're like roster. Yeah, they'll be able
0: to increase their fee by by four to ten times.
1: Yeah, of and what
0: it was before.
1: Exactly, and then that trickles down and really hurts the local drag king community and their and performances and yeah. cabaret people. And it's like it really is top down. Like when I think about anything to do with sex work, I always think about like it is not the bandage solution is not to just like focus necessarily on the small grassroots organization because you cannot you can't rely on like the altruism of places like venues and management and shows it has to really come top down otherwise people don't really feel the impact mm-hmm. there has to be policy in place that allows people to access their workers rights And fair pay. And when they don't have access to that sort of thing is when you create situations where there is precarity and marginalization. And then that is when people start accepting shittier and shittier working conditions. Management are able to keep a hold of shittier, shittier working conditions because they know they can always find someone else who will do it cheaper. It's, yeah, it's a giant shit show. I don't want to make it sound like drag and like stripping is like shit, but it is indicative of economic decline when these things happen Mm -hmm.
0: absolutely before we finish on our redo episode i want to rewind back because you know right now you're a master in the making a often naked flapper flapping about (laughs) but let's let's rewind back to little sam who was little sam's first or most prominent asian icon who what asian did you see growing up that you thought yes it it, it'd be me
1: i've thought about this i thought about there's so many versions of this because again i grew up with asian culture so there's so many examples but my favorite one is anna suchia anna suchia is half japanese half polish She's kind of in her 30s now. She had her heyday in like the late 90s, early 2000s again, because that's another. Was it was a good up.
0: time for popular culture. It was
1: fantastic for popular culture. She is an ex-model. She had a really messy, messy teenage sort of three years in her modeling career. She was like an alcoholic at 13. She had a severe eating disorder because oh, um, being Asian skinny is really hard. Basically for anybody. Yes,
0: there's skinny and then there's asian skinny. Yeah,
1: th- two very different things. She was getting really badly bullied within the modeling like world in Japan at the time. So, she said fuck you to that whole industry, became started a band, became a rock star, and then realized that her smoker's voice from smoking at the age of like 13 and 12 kind of like gave her an edge. And then she started Oh my god, acting. did it give
0: her kind of like um Okay, it's sad to make a Friends reference, but I grew up on Friends. When Phoebe got a cold and she had that sexy, raspy voice.
1: <laughs> kind of, except, like, Anna Tsuchiya kept that for the rest of her I
0: life. sexy singing, yeah.
1: Yeah, sort of.
0: That sounds like my fake macho voice from earlier. I
1: on. know. <laughs> but yeah, she kept that, and it kind of turned her into an edge. And, like, she then, the way a lot of, like, Asian celebrities sort of work is that they become, like, part of like the entire just celebrity sort of industry like no one just sings yeah they
0: go from like socialite to singer to movie star.
1: yeah so that's kind of what happened to her but like not in like a manufactured way in more of like a well people just realized she actually had talent and that she was she did not give a shit her interviews are really funny she swears a lot and she's just like your image of, like, good girl gone bad, but, like, the perfect Asian girl just fucking who could not give a shit anymore. And all the roles she takes in movies are this same character, a very specific mm. character trope. Um, which then leads into my last and final addition into the queer Asian Pokedex.
0: Okay, get the Pokedex out, people.
1: Starring Anna Suchia, um It is called Kamikaze Girls.
0: Kamikaze Girls. It's
1: about, it's this, okay, again, very, very specific to, like, anime and Japanese, like, uh, media of, like, two same-gender best friends, I put that in quotes, who are, like, rivals but also have a flourishing friendship, and they kind of end up being soulmates in a way where it's, like, clearly there's something that the other one has that, the one other one doesn't have and they kind of make up for each other's like differences and like they go through so much character development together they never really have romantic interest in each other but you just all they do is spend time with each other there's love
0: there's like that love yeah of
1: course Tension.
0: raw sexual tension
1: totally so she plays a like teenage like High school dropout motorcycle gangster who's really rough around the edges. Yeah, she's like a bad
0: schoolgirl. Yeah. In her school uniform, but like the tie is like down. Very Avril Lavigne.
1: Yes, very Avril Lavigne. And she becomes best friends with this girl who is like a self proclaimed Lolita. In Japanese culture, it's, like, girls who wear these, like, ginormous sort of, like, frilly maid outfits. and
0: Parasols like, and, and, yeah, and very little aprons. Yeah, Very
1: cute. So she looks like a princess walking around with this motorcycle, like, gang girl. And that's the movie. The movie is them going through, like, self-discovery together and coming of age together. And I'm just like, this shit is gay!
0: It's so gay because you have, like, kind of, like, the, like, pretty pillow princess one. And then you have the kind of, like... I mean they're both very feminine, but like the bad girl's kind of like, you know, she's kinda butch. She's got that attitude.
1: Yeah, big time. And then there's also a movie called Sakuran. I wouldn't put this in the queer I mean maybe I'd put it in just like a Pokedex of like stuff people should just watch. It's called It's Sakuran and Anatsuchi is also in it and she plays she plays not a geisha, an oiran which is like an actual sex worker. So the difference between a geisha and the actual prostitutes. Ah. And the difference is, one of the biggest differences is geisha wear their bows in the back. Oirans wear them in the front because it's easier to untie. So they can be
0: opened. Yes. I have to tell you, I've just Googled everyone's sakuran, which is like the word sakura with an N at the end. And it is visually breathtaking. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's
1: beautiful. And Anatsuchiya plays a very unruly like main character prostitute who again finds herself and it is again i guess this for me was really really important because i was like it's night this is like the only kind of like version of like a sex worker i would really see that looks like me in media that was also visually stunning and beautiful and touches upon all these things that like i deal with on a daily basis which is like how do i remove my sex worker identity from my regular life when all I know is sex work because all I've done since I was 19 years old is art and sex work. So now as a good someone who dates as well in my romantic life, mm. I don't actually know what I would be like outside of sex work. I don't know that. I don't really know. I just, this is how my formative years have been this. So I take everything that I know from sex work and how to, like, seduce somebody and make someone feel special, and that is who I am, mm. like, privately as well. I don't know how to disconnect mm. those things, and Sakuron kind of really perfectly encapsulates that as well. my
0: gosh. Okay, so in today's episode, you have given book recommendations, film recommendations, <laughs> yeah. the readers, the listeners have a lot to go to consume, thanks to our amazing guest, Samantha Sun. I would like to thank you for not only doing this episode with me once, but doing it twice. And you know what? Getting to do it a second time has been a gift for our listeners because we went in deeper. We went in harder, but we got more consent, which is important.
1: (laughs) We now we're more prepared. So
0: I would like you to tell our dear, dear listeners where they can track you down on the interweb if they so choose to do so. And if you consent to them finding you.
1: Yes, you can come find me on my Instagram. Uh, it is Samantha dot two S's son. So Samantha Sun with two S's. And um, yeah, you can find me there. I You can also email me if you want. All that stuff is there. I do have a website, but we're not ready yet. We're not so ready. yeah, just find me there. I run tons of sex worker related stuff all the time. I run a life drawing class. I yeah. I can also be booked to do any kind of fun stag do bachelor party If you want to look at my asshole for money, we can do that.
0: And at the moment, it's all on Zoom. It's all COVID safe. I
1: got a 4K camera. I'm not using it right now, but (sighs) I got a very expensive 4K webcam. So you can look at my bum hole in HD.
0: And see every pore.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You can see what I had for dinner last night. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Thank you all so much for listening and go... Go, go book, go book, Samantha. Get that 4K camera to use. <laughs>
1: Thank you. And
0: now you have to say goodbye to our listeners in whatever language you so choose.
1: I'm going to say goodbye in body language, but you're going to have to narrate for them.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay, everyone. <clears throat> Samantha son. Okay, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Okay. Samantha is looking over the shoulder toward the camera while brushing the face. The hand is now brushing against the arm and now the arm is reaching out toward the camera, caressing the camera and reeling it in close back to the face, back to the lips rather. Ooh, touching the lips. Now turning away from the camera more, looking away from the camera, but then looking back over the shoulder and giving you a little wave with the other hand. Ooh. (laughs) Oh my goodness, if um, if you're going to be doing any sort of live performances online and want to make it accessible for people who are visually impaired, I'm happy to describe it. (laughs) Ooh, okay, well, now, not only can you book Samantha, you can also book me to narrate Samantha's performances. This is the new package deal, and guess what? You just have to pay us, as we said. We don't care about being empowered, You, you just have to pay us, because guess what? Payment is empowering.
1: Exactly.
0: Thanks for biting down into another episode of Bitten Peach Pod. If you're hungry for more, make sure to go to our Instagram. It's Bitten Peach Pod. And if you liked the tastes of today's episode, please leave us a review. And the greatest honor of all would be for you to tell your friends, share this podcast on your social medias, and we'll be back next week with more Juicy ripe. bitten peach action
1: there's no heterosexual explanation for this